Welcome, everybody, to Boxing History 101. I'm Mike Goodpaster on the Grueling Truth Sports Network, and I want to remind you all to go check us out at Grueling Truth on Twitter. And also, make sure you check out all of our shows on YouTube by hitting the like, subscribe, share button, let everybody know about us. This is our second episode of the Boxing History 101. Our first show was... A great show about Billy Misk, which was a great story. Make sure you check that out. Make sure you like and subscribe on Facebook also. But let's go ahead. Let's get started. There's not a lot of video of Barbados Joe or Barbados Joe Walcott. So we're just going to go with this picture of him. But the birthplace of many old-time fighters is in dispute, even the birth date. Now, Joe Walcott, whose name was adopted by a man who went on to win the World Heavyweight Championship, is no exception. He was named the greatest welterweight of all time by Ring Magazine's Nate Fleischer. And Walcott was born on April 7th, 1872, or March 13th, 1873, depending on the source. But what's unusual about Walcott is that even the date of his death is uncertain. Some say it was October the 1st, 1935. Others pinpoint October 4th of that year. Both dates are nothing but approximations and guesses. Now, what we do know is Walcott was born in Guyana and spent his formative years in Barbados before arriving in Boston in his mid-teens. He supposedly arrived as a cabin boy in a ship and was marooned after overstaying his shore leave. When he took up boxing, he was working as an elevator operator or a piano mover. Again, reports differ. But regardless... Boston became his home, and he remained in the Boston area for all but a few of the last years of his life. As boxers go, Walcott was a freak of nature. He stood only five foot one and a half, was barrel-chested with virtually no neck, and had extremely long arms. He held a welterweight title for the better part of four years, beginning in 1901, but would be best remembered for conquering men much bigger than he. Now, Walcott was a stable mate of the great fighter George Little Chocolate Dixon, a man who in his prime was rated maybe the best pure boxer in the sport. When George Dixon hit the vaudeville circuit between important engagements, as was the custom for an important fighter in those days, even the great Jack Dempsey did stuff like that, the Barbados Demon, as he was called, often accompanied him, either serving as his valet or boxing a local man, perhaps a plant in the audience, in a bout with a short ceiling. Customarily, the fights were short four rounds. On those occasions when he and Dixon were both taking all, all, on all comers, the audience got a doubleheader of two of the greatest fighters of that time. Walcott also frequently worked as Dixon's second, working alongside their manager Tom O'Rourke, and would become a frequent sparring partner of the famous heavyweight sailor Tom Sharkey after Sharkey came east and joined the O'Rourke stable. The wily and politically connected O'Rourke Handed, handled some mostly black fighters and had enough juice to match the best of them with good white fighters during an era when interracial fights were banned in many places, ostensibly because they were tinderboxes for racial discord. Now, Walcott's signature win was a seventh-round stoppage of Joe Choynensky. They met in, no, they met February 23rd, 1900 in New York. Walcott knocked him down five times in the opening round and kept up a steady assault until the referee halted the massacre. Now, this was the same Joe Choynoski who had fought a 20-round draw with the great James J. Jeffries, the then reigning world heavyweight champion, and would soon knock out the formidable up-and-comer Jack Johnson. Now, like so many of Walcott's fights, his match with Choynoski 
a super middleweight by today's standards, was fought at a catchweight. Barbados Joe was still outweighed by almost 20 pounds. By Walcott standards, that wasn't a large deficit. The following year, he went on to San Francisco and scored a 20-round decision over George Gardner, a man who would come to be recognized as the world's lightweight, light heavyweight champion. According to the San Francisco Call, the daily newspaper in San Francisco, the crowd laughed when the fighters were brought to the center of the ring to get their instructions for the referee. Gardner was the taller man by a foot. Now, folks also laughed when Walcott fought Fred Russell in Chicago. Russell weighed 215 pounds, 50 pounds more than Barbados Joe weighed. We have heard of fighters landing an uppercut of such ferocity that their opponent is lifted off the ground. Barbados Joe turned this image upside down. It was written that his feet were six inches off the ground when he toppled the gigantic Fred Russell with a smash to the jaw. From that point on, Russell fought timidly, lasting the six-round distance, which by prearrangement earned him a draw. Walcott said Tom O'Rourke, in a 1903 interview, was one of the hardest men to manage I ever had. He did not want to train, but he was so strong that it didn't didn't really make a difference. He could take an amount of punishment that would have sent a white man to the hospital for repairs. So you can see Tom O'Rourke was not politically correct. I don't think anybody was in 1903. But Walcott broke free of O'Rourke. They would later reconcile. But O'Rourke basically took advantage of Barbados Joey's entire career. Now, Declaring his independence was a bold move on Walcott's part, as O'Rourke was a hard-boiled guy with pals in the underworld. Somewhere in New York, there is an extremely black and squat Negro who, if the truth was known, probably is in mortal terror of his life, said a story in a, in a Connecticut paper. Now, Walcott crammed 138 documented fights into a career spread across 19 years. He missed all of 1905 after accidentally shooting himself in the hand in October of the previous year. No, he wasn't related to Plexico Burris. But typically, of all great boxers, he hung on too long, winning only five of his last 21 fights, which really dumbs down his record. But he left the sport in good shape financially, or at least so it was written. He was a family man. He owned a nice cottage on a good-sized piece of land in a Boston suburb of Malden, Massachusetts. But his marriage unraveled, and whatever savings he had eventually evaporated. Sound familiar? Things really don't change even in 100 years. Now, in 1932, he worked as a porter at Yankee Stadium, switching to Madison Square Garden when the weather turned cold. On the side, he taught boxing at a boys' club and refereed some informal amateur bouts. He then resided in the unheated basement of the, former, of the home of a brother who had a small Manhattan ice and coal business. Now, the thing that's cool, and you can find this on YouTube, is there was an interview of Barbados Joe Walcott from 1932 that surfaced last December on YouTube. That rare video is from the collection of Steve Lott, the protege of Mike Tyson's late co-manager, Bill Caton, who once owned the largest collection of rare fight films in the world. In the video, Walcott talks about his bouts with Choynoski and Kid Levine, and talks in general terms about the current crop of fighters back in 1932. And his comment was, sometimes the boys box so bad, I get a little disgusted. You can't tell them anything because they, they know more than you. And I would really suggest you go to YouTube, look that video up. It's a great artifact for anybody that's a history of boxing fan. Now, inevitably, the life of Barbados Joe Walcott intrigued some folks in Hollywood. 
That is why Walcott headed west in the fall of 1935 with a man who identified himself as a theatrical agent. A studio executive was interested in talking with Joe about a potential biopic. Now, somewhere in Ohio, the two became separated. Walcott was last seen in the town of Mansfield. He came to the police station one night and told me his partner was sick, said the Mansfield chief of police. He wanted to know where the colored section of town was located, and I asked if he had money for a room. I directed him to the district. When he told me he could pay for his lodging, I know he was down there for a couple to three days. That was for the Mansfield police sergeant that was in charge. The disappearance of Joe Walcott, perhaps the greatest welterweight ever, didn't set off any alarms. He and his associate reportedly left his sister's house in Philadelphia on September the 7th. The quotes from the Mansfield chief of police ran in the Mansfield News Journal on December 12th. Three months later, on March 7th, 1936, this headline appeared in the Baltimore African-American. Joe Walcott still missing after six months. Back in early October of 1935, a man with no identification was found dead by the side of the road near Massillon, Ohio, 55 miles from Mansfield. An examination of his body indicated that it had been hit by a car. The man was buried in an unmarked grave in Dalton, Wayne County, Ohio. Ultimately, it was determined that this deceased man was the great Barbados Joe Walcott. Walcott's tombstone now reads, Joe Walcott, world's champion, 1872 to 1935. It's a nice, simple memorial, but doesn't begin to tell the story of Joe Walcott, the Barbados demon. The little giant, as he was sometimes referenced, was a remarkable man. And this was a this is a great story. Anything you can find to read on Barbados Joe Walcott. There's a lot of people, including me, who still think he's one of the top ten welterweights that ever lived. He fought men well above his weight class, even fighting and beating heavyweights, as we've already discussed. So the story of Barbados Joe is something something that everybody needs to know if you're a boxing fan. All right, guys, that was our boxing history lesson for today. Boxing History 101, once again, I'm Mike Goodpaster. Make sure you check out BetMGM if you want to bet on any of the fights coming up this weekend or any weekends following. Make sure you like, subscribe, hit the bell notification button on YouTube. But for now, I'm Mike Goodpaster. You've been watching and listening to The Grueling Truth, where the legends speak.